Hey, hey everyone, back again. Today I want to talk about the differences between Judith Butler and Michel Foucault on the topic of sexuality, specifically the different ideas and conclusions drawn from Judith Butler's Gender Trouble compared with those of Michel Foucault's The History of Sexuality, Volume 1. Before jumping into it, hi, I'm David. I explain philosophical concepts and ideas and ways to make them accessible to you. So if you're new here, like, share, subscribe. You can see 300 episodes I already have up that will add to your already vast knowledge. We can all learn together. If you want to follow me anywhere other than here, you can find me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy or on Twitter at David Guineo or on TikTok at theory philosophy. You can also help me out monetarily via Patreon or PayPal, but no pressure to do that. If you found this on YouTube, you're going to be able to find just the audio alone on pretty much any podcast platform. If you found this as a podcast, you're going to be able to find the audio accompanied by video on YouTube if you're into that. So yeah. Let's jump into the differences between Judith Butler and Michel Foucault. Now, I'm going to do this by focusing on gender trouble and comparing it with the history of sexuality. So I just want to give a little brief summary of each and then highlight their main points of distinction. Like, of course, they're different books, so there, there are tons of differences. But I mean, as far as the broad conclusions go and as far as identifying exactly how sexual repression is exercised and how to remedy it. Now, Judith Butler's gender trouble is focused on the problem of assuming that there is a neat distinction between sex on the one hand and gender on the other, which is what I would say most people learn throughout any kind of their time in life, is that there's this real physiological thing called sexuality, and then there is the artificial thing called gender that exists on top of that sexuality. So people are born with certain bodies and these bodies happen to comply with many other people. And so from that is inferred the idea that there are men, there are women, and there are people who might be ambiguous and whose chromosomal configuration might deviate from either an XY or XX chromosomal configuration. Now they point to this to say, look, okay, this is real. However, we acknowledge that gender is always fluid because gender is always communicated through dress, through speech, through everything like that. And these things change today from culture to culture. People wear different things across history. People wear different things. They talk in different ways. Various tasks and duties are ascribed to different people. Historically, for example, cooking was something that was reserved for like monks in some European settings for male monks who could, other female monks? Anyways, for male monks who would take on these roles and then that task became more of a woman's obligation as industrialization took a foot. So this is to say that in this traditional framework, you have this real thing called sexuality and then you have something called gender that is apt to change. Now the problem here for Butler is that it's almost impossible, I say almost because Butler is clear that it might be possible, it's almost impossible to actually discuss sexuality, this real thing pointing to bodies and people's physiological makeups, without going through the medium of gender to discuss and to understand that sexuality. So Butler's point is to say that there isn't so much of a neat divide between the two, almost like 
a nature versus nurture argument. Instead, Butler points to many of the historical developments in which scientific knowledge about people's bodies and their sexuality and their chromosomal makeup was influenced by and mediated through their understanding of gender, which is that cultural thing that is susceptible to change. So you might say, how? I mean, how can science be affected by gender? Well, Judith Butler draws upon the work of David Page, who was a scientist in the 80s and 70s, I guess, who was fascinated and who studied chromosomes. And so at one point, David Page was fascinated with the example of somebody who didn't have a standard XXX or XY chromosomal configuration, not to mention there are so many other possible configurations. We tend to ignore that and instead just reduce all people into being under either men or women without actually following the science, you know, and suggesting there could be five or six genders. But that's another conversation for another day. But David Page was fascinated with situations in which people with XY chromosomes could be women and people with XX chromosomes could be men. So traditionally, XY chromosomes would mean that you would exemplify certain traits that we associate culturally with being a man. Whereas having XX chromosomes, we would traditionally associate with you presenting yourself as a woman. But David Page started to notice that there are many people with XX chromosomes presenting themselves as men and living their lives as men. And there are many people with XY chromosomes doing the opposite presenting themselves as women, even though biologically, physiologically, they should comply with the gender that they were assigned at birth, determined by their sex, determined by their bodies. So if you're listening to this and you're thinking, wait, that's weird. Why was he looking at people like women with XY chromosomes and trying to find like the truth of their gender? David Page was obsessed with knowing what the truth of these people's genders were. But it's interesting because the very fact of deviating from a norm, a believed to be norm, influenced him desperately to find a reason for that deviation, as though the deviation itself could not be normal and natural in itself. And what is bizarre instead is that desire to impose an identity onto people, to make sense of them when they deviate from that identity. And here we see a very strong connection with Michel Foucault's work who has often written about this act of prosecuting, of institutionalizing, trying to understand people who deviate from the norm in order to bring them back to the norm. So with all of these cases, instead of David Page saying, okay, I guess there can be XX chromosome people who, whose chromosomes don't actually matter at all, they're just presenting themselves the way that makes sense to them, and that's a good thing. Instead of that being his conclusion, he sought to understand biologically how that could be the case. He sought to look at people's bodies, to look at their cells, to understand why they were presenting themselves in one way that was different from the expectation imposed upon people with that chromosomal framework. So we see here that one's gender presentation motivates scientific observation and scientific discovery because David Page was trying to twist the science in order to make sense of what in the world 
the thing that was open to change, gender, how that was not making sense to him. So he had to go in and alter the science, twist it around to make sense of it. But this opens up a number of questions. How come some signs are implicitly associated with one's sexuality, one's body? Why does dressing a certain way imply that you must have certain chromosomal makeup? What does it mean to present oneself as a woman, to present oneself as a man, to present oneself as non-binary or anything else? How does that make any sense at all that we can ascribe such transcendent value to these identity markers in the form of their biological truth? Because we know that gender is always fluid. It's always going to be changing. So why then is there this obsession with locating it within the body, really hammering it down and making sense of it? It's always going to be changing. So that means then that the science must always be changing to adapt to it. Or the alternative, and this is exemplified in David Page's approach, instead of alternating the science, instead of changing the science to match a changing world, the science is kept grounded and everything else is seen as being fake or artificial in order to uphold the primacy of the scientific endeavors and their capacity to reveal the truth, whereas everything else is artificial. Now, that's just gender trouble in a nutshell. There's so much more to it. Go check out my episodes on gender trouble if you want, but just kind of the key points. Now, Michel Foucault's The History of Sexuality goes as follows. In it, he pretty much says, we have bought the illusion that sexuality has been repressed in the 17th, 18th centuries in Europe in England, he focuses on a lot in France, but he suggests that this is a big illusion. Instead, what happened was many different institutional configurations, specifically medical ones, plus prison ones as well, instead of oppressing sexuality, what we saw instead was a growing body of research about it, a growing understanding about it, not so that people's knowledge of sexuality can be expanded per se, but so that sexuality can be more neatly controlled. So before Michel Foucault, there's a guy by the name of Sigmund Freud, who I'm sure you've heard of, who provides us the hypothesis that sexuality is something that has been repressed in order to keep society afloat. Sexuality essentially gets in the way of a properly functioning society. Michel Foucault, on the other hand, says that no, actually there is this very strong obsession with sexuality. People are so concerned with understanding it. And once we accept that, once we acknowledge historically there is this obsession with it, then Foucault asks us to look at which sexualities are being really studied and really understood, and which ones are being prosecuted, and which ones are being welcomed and treated as normal. So he finds that instead of there being this blanket repression of sexuality, instead there was a welcoming of certain sexual attributes and there was the application of names to different sexual orientations. And these all serve the end of making sure that these sexualities would be easily grounded and coded to allow for a little mobility so that they wouldn't become too transgressive. Now some sexualities in themselves, like being homosexual, 
for example, was something that was seen as being and continues to be seen to this day, seen as something that needs to be managed, contained, needs to be exercised away so that it doesn't actually pose a threat to the established normal form of sexual conduct in heterosexuality. So within this, Foucault identifies that there is this effort to make people really live their sexuality so that not only is it something that is done privately, but something that they must make a part of their identity in order for that identity to more be easily controlled. Because if it comes out, if it becomes part of public life, then it can be more easily managed and it can be more easily policed from deviating from a norm. Because all of this discourse around sexuality happened to be emerging at a time in which the social body and society itself was implementing more stringent forms of control over the population in order to limit the possibility of revolts, of mobs, of any kind of transgressions in society. And at the time then was the opportunity that sexuality could be welcomed in certain forms so that it could be controlled and managed. Now these forms of surveillance would be used to make sure that sexuality was conducted in the proper ways and that there wouldn't be deviations from the norm. Because like we saw, like Butler analyzed in David Page, when there is a deviation from the norm, then system freaks out. It has to understand why there's this deviation. It has to twist science in order to make it seem as though there's a reason for this deviation. Now, that was just brief. If you want more on that, go see the episodes I've done on the history of sexuality. But the point between them, the points of contact between Michel Foucault and Judith Butler are many. Butler is indebted to Foucault and uh, his inspiration on their work is just it's very clear. Now, with that being said, they have a very different approach to dealing with these systems of power that try to control sexuality, where Judith Butler says that the primary goal of gender trouble is to expand legitimacy to those forms of sexuality that have been repressed and oppressed in order to allow for a flourishing of sexual possibility, of the possibility of different sexual gender identities and sexual identities to flourish and to really exist happily. Now, Foucault is not quite so quick to prescribe that solution to this issue because Foucault is concerned that if there is an expansion, and Foucault wasn't responding directly to Butler, of course, and this was many years before, but Foucault says that if there is this expansion of discourse around sexuality, even if it is in the name of expanding sexual categories and understanding, then it will just fall prey to these legitimating apparatuses that try to establish a norm. So then these new gender identities will become the norm and there will be the continued repression of certain other ones in order to uphold that norm. And that will continue to be the case until the very structures of power that underwrite these systems has been challenged. Now instead, Foucault suggests that instead of us focusing on sexuality, our focus should be on what he calls bodies and pleasure, which he suggests is that thing or are those things that exist beneath sexuality. It's kind of like returning to the body in a sense. And this is a conclusion, to be quite honest, I don't totally agree with. In this debate, 
if we can call it a debate, I'm definitely on the Butler side of this equation because Foucault in suggesting that there is this underneath, this sort of underbelly to sexuality in the form of bodies, what he's effectively saying is there is this like transcendent zone that is somehow free from the influences of power. And it is about fostering that zone in order to liberate people. So this is, to me, this is, is like falling prey to the same trap that he is trying to draw attention to suggesting, making us believe that there is a zone somehow free from power, when this very idea of transcendence through imminence by turning to oneself, what makes oneself real, like in this case, the body and true, this is just a big trap to provide the sense of one's being liberated. Now, I wasn't planning on giving too much of my own opinion here. I'm more curious to what, hear what everyone else thinks. So let me know. What do you think? Are you on Butler's side? Are you on Foucault's side? Tell me why. I'd love to hear about it. I hope that this was illuminating for you. I know there's so much more to this. Go check out the episodes I've done on both Butler and Foucault. There's so many of them. Hopefully that'll give you a better picture. But for now, let me know what you think. If you like what I did, like, share, subscribe. And yeah, catch you later. Take care.